Amen. Men, so here's what I want to start with. Wednesday night, uh, Jake, when he was presenting the gospel, first of all, you guys look so good this morning. Um, just all these beautiful faces. Um, Wednesday night, Jake was presenting the gospel, and in this room, um, we prayed. We prayed while he presented the gospel. Who was here Wednesday night? Remember what we asked God to do? We asked him to save. Six salvations will go through that water today because we were begging God to save, and he showed up and did it. I say that to say this. I, I, he didn't save because we prayed. He, he owns salvation. It belongs to him. It's his miracle. But there are things that God will do when his people pray that just don't happen if we don't pray. And we got on our knees and we asked God to show up in power and he did. So here's the invitation. Ready? Do you have areas in your life where you need God to show up in power? Do you need more of his presence, more of an awareness that he is alive, more of his wisdom, more of his discernment, more of his strength? You need that? We're going to get in this room and again on Wednesday night, we're going to call on his name and ask him to move. So come, come and pray with us. Well, man, I'm so excited that you're here. I am excited to be jumping into this new series called Uncommon Culture. Uncommon Culture. And what we're looking at are the kingdom values that God has given us at New Beginnings that we believe lead to a kingdom impact. And we're going to be un, un, really unpacking for the next four weeks the four core values that we hold at New Beginnings because these values that we hold, these are what have built the culture that we have and the uncommon culture that we believe we're called to see expand, right? And when we talk about culture, what is that? What is culture? Well, culture is a, an agreed-upon kind of set of values and rules, and those values and rules drive behavior, right? That's culture. Culture is, most of the time, it's unwritten. We don't have to talk about them. Everybody just knows it, right? So you have this unwritten rules and values, and because everybody agrees upon those, those drive the behavior in a society, and we call that a culture, right? So I'll give you some examples because we see these all over our society. Here's just a few examples. Um, when you go to the movie theater, what is the rule? What's the seating rule between you and somebody you did not come with? What's the rule? You better give me a one-seat buffer. You know what I mean? I don't, if, we if I'm touching elbows and I don't know you, I don't like that. I'm distracted the whole movie. I'm going to miss the whole thing. Anybody ever been in a theater where there were 75 empty seats and somebody got right beside you? You know what that says? Serial killer. That's what it says. Right? That's what it says. Uh, here's, how about, about the last time you got on an elevator? Right? There are some rules, and we just know them. We know these rules, right? For instance, when you get on the elevator, give some distance. Don't stand right up on people. Uh, how about don't look people in the eye? Nobody wants awkward eye contact while you're going up the elevator. Have y'all seen the one where the guy's turning into his parents and he's literally facing the wrong way on the elevator? It just, you know what I mean? There's some rules. Here's one. Um, hang up the phone. I'm just going to throw that out there. If you get on an elevator and you're just yelling a conversation while we're all trying to ride the elevator with you, I want, to, I want you to know something. Nobody's going to say it. But everybody on the elevator with you, here's what they're thinking. I can think of a dozen places to hide his body, and he'll never be found. 
I know right now where to put him and nobody will ever know. I can do it, right? Here's, 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 here's another one, uh, and this one's near and dear to my heart. How about um, when, you, when you're driving, would somebody tell me what the left lane on the interstate is for? What's it for? It's for passing. It's for passing. Um, right, right lane for slow drivers, left lane for normal drivers, and it's for passing. So I just want to give you a nugget of truth and love, which is this. If you are in the left lane and you're being passed by people and they're in the right lane, you, one, are breaking the cultural norm, and two, you are the very reason the phrase road rage was invented. <laughs> right? I wasn't mad before you started driving 55 miles an hour in the left lane, but now I am. I'm, I'm pretty frustrated with you. Right? So what do we have? We've got some agreed-upon values and rules that we all agree upon, and these drive behavior that is our culture. And what we're looking at here for the next four weeks are the four core values that we've embraced, and these are the values that drive our culture. These are the values that shape our priorities. They inspire us to be obedient. They, they, they propel our mission. They propel our vision. They, they, um, they direct who we are and dictate the way that we live. These core values matter. And I want to tell you, if you're um, kind of wondering, all right, what is New Beginnings really about? Um, we're not about serial killer jokes. We're about some serious business, right? What we are about, the, the next four weeks, we'll unpack that for you. We're about seeing people be connected to P Jesus and his ever-restoring life, and we do that where we live, work, and play. And these core values that we're going to unpack are what propel that mission forward. And so I want to put all four values up for you right now. These are the core values that we hold at New Beginnings. The first one is the Bible is true. That's where we'll be uh, camping out today. Every believer is called. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I can't wait for us to spend some time in this next week just unpacking the reality that God has a call on your life. Every person is valuable, and God's presence is essential. So we're going to be looking at that first core value, which is the Bible is true. This is something that we say every single week. We say it before we read the first word of God's word. We affirm this to be true. And we, we, what today is going to be about is to discover why we believe the Bible is true and why we hold this as our highest value. When we say the Bible is true, I want you to hear me. We don't mean this is a book that has some truth in it. That's not what we mean. When we say the Bible is true, we don't mean this book is true like a history book is true. That's not what we mean. When we say the Bible is true, we mean it is divinely true and is the foundation and the measure for all truth. That's what we mean. When we say the Bible, which means this, we, when, the, when we say the Bible is true, we mean it cannot be false. We mean it is not inaccurate. It is the truth of all truth that undergirds everything for the church, for our lives, and ultimately for the world. And here's what I would tell you. When we look out into the world and we see brokenness in the world, everywhere that you see brokenness in the world, you can know that is the byproduct 
of people walking outside of what God has commanded and revealed about himself in his word. Every splinter of brokenness in this world is the byproduct of us walking outside of what God has given us in his word. So this is our first and our highest value. Why? Because everything else we hold is important. Everything else we hold as a core value, we hold it there because that is how God's word revealed it to us. This is the highest value that we hold. And this is no ordinary book. Matter of fact, I want you to tell your neighbor, this is no ordinary book. Go ahead and say it to him right now. It's no ordinary book. If your neighbor didn't say that with some enthusiasm, I want you to tattletale on him after this service. Listen, maybe this book's this maybe no ordinary book. I don't know. He's making me. I wasn't going to say it, right? <laughs> it's no ordinary book. And we're going to unpack why we see this book as divine and why we see this book as true and why this is the most extraordinary piece of literature in the history of humanity. That's what today is about discovering. So grab your Bible, head to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 3 in a very, very familiar uh, area of Scripture. Uh, Most of the time when people think about, okay, what verses talk about the Bible, 2 Timothy 3 often comes to mind. This is a letter that was written by Paul to Timothy. It was written toward the end of Paul's life, kind of one of the last things that we have from him. Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus at this time. And he's writing this letter to encourage this pastor, um, but also to remind him that his life is to look different, and he is to lead the people in his church for their lives to look different. So I want you to notice the first four words of, of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Here are the first four words Paul says. He says, Timothy, but as for you, but as for you. Now, I stop there because I want you to realize he's about to start telling Timothy, okay, you got to be different than everything else I've just said. What you're going to see in in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is really the first nine verses. Well, all of the chapter, Paul is talking about two vastly different cultures built on vastly different values. In in, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, Paul is unpacking the reality that uh, he's talking about the kingdom and the culture of this world. And he describes it as being uh, lovers of self, self first, filled with pride, arrogant, only loving pleasure, no self-control, living by whatever standards and whatever values satisfy the flesh. And then you get to verse 10 and Paul goes, okay, but Timothy, you're not of that culture. You're not of that kingdom. you're You're called to an uncommon culture with a different kind of values that lead to different behavior. And he gets into verse 12 and 13, and he goes, but Timothy, I want you to know this, that people that live according to the kingdom values, the people that live in an uncommon culture because of what God has done in their life, they're going to be persecuted. And they're going to be persecuted because there's evil in the world, and evil people are just going to go on doing evil things. And then you get to verse 14, and he says, knowing that this is the culture of the world, knowing that it is costly to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He says in verse 14, but as for you, and now he's about to tell us the difference. So before we jump in, let's affirm this value. Would you say with me, the Bible is true. The Bible is true. 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. I don't have time to tell you what that means. It's Paul's way of saying, I want you to remember back to your mother and grandmother. They taught you how important this Bible, these writings are, and they've taught you what a relationship with God is. So there's some legacy written in here, right? Knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What we're going to discover is that the Word of God is the only thing that can equip the people of God to live in the uncommon culture. This is the only thing that can equip us to live out our kingdom values and to have a kingdom impact. What's going to correct us when we drift toward the culture of the world? What's going to strengthen us when that persecution comes? What's going to guide us into what pleases the Lord Jesus? Paul is saying it is only the Word of God that can do that. This is no ordinary book. It is divine. And what we're going to talk about, I want to give you two ways this morning that we see the divinity or the supernatural nature of the Word of God. The first is this. The Bible is divine in its nature. The Bible is divine in its nature. Look at that phrase again in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That is one of the coolest and most important phrases in the entire Bible. It's, I'm not saying it's the most important sentence. I'm saying it's one of the most important, and it's one of the most fascinating. Because when Paul says that, he, it's important because that phrase sets this book apart from every other book that has ever existed or will ever exist. The fact that this book is breathed out by God. What that means is when Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God, it means this, these scriptures are God's very own words. And the Bible is true and the Bible is authoritative because it is inspired by and breathed out by God. That phrase breathed out is one compound word in the Greek, which is theopneustos. And I practiced that and I'm confident I got it wrong anyway. But that's the word. Um, and it's two words, theo and neustos, theo meaning God, neustos meaning breath or breathe, and so you get this, and you don't see that word anywhere else in the Bible. You don't even see it anywhere else in the Greek language. Why? Paul invented it to right here in this one moment to help us understand the divine nature of the Bible. It is God-breathed, meaning it is the very exhaling of God. That's what, that's what that means. So that when we hold the Bible, we don't hold man's words. We hold God's words. The creator of the universe that breathed planets and stars into existence breathed out a book. So the words that, that are contained in this book are not the 
product of, of human intellect or human creativity. They are the divine revelation of God. They are divine truths of God's kingdom. They are direct from God, and they are direct a direct reflection of God's nature. This book is divine in its nature. Peter helps us understand this a, a little uh, more deeply in 2 Peter. If you want to hold your place here in 2 Timothy, turn to 2 Peter. We're going to look in chapter 1, verse 20, just two quick verses that, that kind of deepen our understanding here. 2 Peter 1, verse 20, here's what Peter says. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Boy, that's important. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when Paul says the word is God-breathed, Timothy gives more clarity and says, here's what that means. The words of Scripture, the prophecies of Scripture, these didn't come from the will of man. These, it comes from the will of God, and the men that wrote it were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, when you look at the Old Testament, and you look at the New Testament, and you hear me say things like, well, Paul wrote that, or David wrote that, or Jeremiah wrote that, or Isaiah wrote that, or Peter wrote that. Here's what we mean. While it might have been their hand writing the words, it was the divine authority and the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit at work in that hand to only put the words down that were the breathed out words of God. In other words, it might have been their hand writing, but they are not the real authors of the book. That is the Holy Spirit. And the reason this book is true is because God is true. God is the source of all truth. He cannot lie. And because the Bible is the divinely breathed out words of the one who cannot lie, then it is true and it cannot be anything else. It cannot be anything else. And you're going, all right. That's, that's exactly what I expected a preacher to say about the Bible, but can you give me some actual evidence that this thing is accurate? Because for most people, they go, well, I don't believe the Bible because it's written by people and there's no way it's accurate. It's got to be filled with mistakes. Well, I want to show you some areas because I believe in both, I believe there's both internal and external evidences that testify to the divine nature of the Bible. I want to give there's more than these 3, but I want to give you 3, all right? The first is this, I think we see the divine nature of God's word in its preservation. Its preservation. All right? The preservation of God's word testifies to its divine nature. What do I mean by that? In all of the scientific in archaeological discoveries of the past 2,000 years, and there have been many of them. In all of them, there has yet to be a single one that refutes or negates any portion of the Bible at all. Not one. Not one. 
every discovery of biblical manuscripts has proved over and over and over again that the Bible is by far the most well-preserved and historically accurate book in history. I want, to, I want to acknowledge before I dive into a few of these that it would take me a month of Sundays to work my way through every historical evidence and discovery over the last 2,000 years that affirms the accuracy of God's Word. So if you'll acknowledge that I realize He's only scratching the surface, then you can't be mad at me at how fast I go, okay? So most of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Who's heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls before, right? Most of us have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were discovered in 1947. Um, these are some of the oldest uh, uh, archaeological biblical discoveries ever made. Some of these date back to the 3rd century uh, B.C. Here's what's in, There's two things I want you to know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. One is this. Every single Old Testament book except for Esther is represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Every one of them is there except for Esther. That's the only one that they didn't see in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The most important scroll is the one they call the Great Isaiah Scroll. The Great Isaiah Scroll is, one, it's the longest and most well-preserved. It's 24 feet long, and it contains the entire book of Isaiah. And it dates back to about 125 B.C. All 66 chapters of Isaiah are on the Great Isaiah Scroll, discovered on the Dead Sea Scrolls, back, dating back to 125 B.C. And here's what's fascinating. As they looked at that and they examined it, when you look at the copy of Isaiah you hold in your hand in your Bible and you hold up the Dead Sea Scroll, there is a grand total of seven variances between the Dead Sea Scroll of 125 B.C. and the copy you hold in your hand right now. And those seven variances, do you know what they have to do with? A punctuation mark here and there and the spelling of a word here and there. A total of seven. No variance has anything to do with context, message, intent, or meaning. Not one thing changes the meaning. There was a punctuation mark here, there, maybe. A total of seven of those from 125 B.C. That is a well-preserved, one might say supernaturally preserved book. Tell you about another one that is called the uh, Ketef Hinnom Scrolls. The Ketef Hinnom Scrolls. These were discovered in 1979. They were two very, very tiny silver scrolls, very, very small, and they were very tightly rolled together. And after they were discovered, they sat unrolled for years because no uh, historian or, or no one was confident enough to try to unroll them without damaging them. But finally, after a good while and whatever scientific processes they have, they were able to unroll them. And what they found were excerpts from Numbers chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 7. That was what was on the Ketaf Hinnom Scrolls. Here's what's beautiful. I want to show you a picture of the Ketaf Hinnom Scrolls, and you tell me if you recognize the words that were written on it. That's what we discovered. That beautiful priest prayer, priestly prayer from number six, when God said, I want my people to know how I feel about them. So Aaron, here's what you're to say to them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you 
and how glorious that that's what was preserved. By the way, the Kataf Hinnom scrolls are some 500 years older than the oldest Dead Sea Scroll, which puts this back somewhere around six to 700 B.C., right? But again, it's the affirmation of how well this book has been. It's supernatural in its preservation. I could go on and on. There's some 5,500 manuscripts total from the New Testament that date back to within 90 years of Christ Jesus himself. And again, any variance that we see in all of those has no impact on the message, no impact on the intent, no impact on the context. Why? Because there is something supernatural in the preservation of this book. It is divine in its nature, and we see that in the preservation. We also see that in its perseverance. In its perseverance, the Bible has stood the test of time. This is the most circulated book in human history, listen, and at the same time, the most persecuted book in human history. I do not have time to tell you how starting all the way back in 1 and 200 B.C., wicked kings over and over and over again would attack God's people and burn every Hebrew manuscript they could get their hands on. And yet time after time, God's word would be preserved. God's word would endure and it would actually drive God's people to treasure them more deeply. You get over the, uh, to the other side of the life of Christ around 300, 303 uh, A.D. and you get Roman emperors who decided that they're going to get rid of Christianity, and they're going to burn every scripture that they can find. That was the Roman emperor, um, I believe his name was Diocletian. He was the one that says Christians are people of the book, so burn the book and you'll destroy the people. 25 years later after Diocletian, the Roman emperor, uh, what was his name? Thank you, Constantine. I don't know who yelled. Was that you, John? Let's high five from across the room. Well done. The Roman Emperor Constantine, 25 years after Diocletian said that, the Roman Emperor Constantine actually ordered the reproducing and the printing of scriptures and had the Roman government pay for it. <laughs> 25 years later. Here's the best one. This one blows my mind. There was a French philosopher named Voltaire, lived in the 1700s. He died about 1778, somewhere in and he was famous for saying that Christianity and the Bible would not exist within 100 years after his death. That was his big statement. 100 years after I die, Christianity and the Bible, they won't even exist. You want to know something glorious? 50 years after his death, his house, his home was bought by the Geneva Bible Society. And it was used for the production and the distribution of Bibles all around the world. How beautiful. I'm telling you, that's just, only God does that kind of stuff. Right? It is divine in its perseverance. One more area I want you to see. By the way, when I say that, that it's divine in its preservation, it's divine in its perseverance, listen, you ought to hear with me the echoes of Jesus saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will stand forever. One other area. It's divine in its prophecy. In its prophecy. There are literally thousands of prophecies in God's word. And every single one of them have come true 
Some of them were still waiting to come true, but based on the sheer number that have come true, we're just going, those are just a matter of time. Thousands. 322 specific prophecies that related to Jesus Christ alone. And listen, he fulfilled every one of them. Every single one of them. I'll give you just a few examples. It was prophesied he, was be, he would be born of a virgin. He was. Prophesied hundreds of years before he was born that he would come from the tribe of Judah. He did. He would be a descendant of David. He was. Born in Bethlehem. Yes. That he would perform miracles. Yes. It was prophesied that he would be betrayed by a close friend and, listen, sold for 30 pieces of silver. Do you realize that was prophesied, that that would happen? It was prophesied that his hands and feet would be pierced. It was prophesied he would be placed in a dead man's tomb. And it was prophesied that he would rise again from the grave. That's just like nine or ten. And the chances of all 322 of those prophecies being fulfilled by one person is actually a mathematical probability that literally our brains can't handle. Cannot ha- we can't handle it. As a matter of fact, um, if you take just the nine or ten prophecies that I just said Jesus fulfilled, and you press that through the scientific measurements of modern probabilities, how they do that, uh, now, the odds of one man just fulfilling the nine or ten I just told you about is something like one in 100 quadrillion. I kid you not. It would be the equivalent of this. Imagine you covered the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, right? Two feet deep. Every square inch of the state of Texas was covered two feet deep in silver dollars. And you took one of those silver dollars and you put a mark on it. And then you just threw it out into Texas. And it was mixed in with all the other silver dollars two feet deep. Now, imagine you blindfold someone. You randomly drop them off in the middle of the state of Texas and say you get one chance to pick the marked coin. That is the same probability. They'll pick the marked coin as the same probability of one man fulfilling nine or ten of those prophecies. And Jesus fulfilled 322 of them. There's something divine in the nature of this book. Now, why do I tell you that? Because I want you to know we do not have to turn off our brains in order to accept that the Bible is divine. We can and we should think critically and intellectually about God's Word. And when you do, And the more you do, what you're going to discover is that it is affirmed as true over and over again. Which means this is not blind faith, it is informed faith. That's the first thing. The Bible is divine in its nature. Here's the second. The Bible is divine in its message. The Bible is divine in its message. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. So look, we read 16, back up to 15. Paul says, and how from the childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for what? For salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There is a divine message. Paul is saying these sacred writings, they they have a primary purpose. There's a reason God has preserved them because it reveals God's redemption for humanity. 
right? The reason it's been preserved, the reason it has endured, the reason it's persevered against all odds and against all hatred and against every wicked king that's tried to destroy it is because God has determined for this book to be the primary means by which he reveals his desire and his design to save mankind through Jesus Christ. And because he has used this book to reveal his design and his desire, he has saw fit to preserve it against all odds. Because of the divine message it contains. And you can see this divinity of the message really in two, two areas I want you to see it. First is this. We see the divinity of the message in the continuity of the structure. The continuity of the structure. What do I mean by that? That's kind of, a, kind of a weird phrase. What I mean in the continuity of the structure is this. In the full structure of the Bible, this book does not one time in any way contradict itself at any moment. This book is in perfect agreement with itself. As a matter of fact, it affirms itself almost 64,000 times in what we would call a cross-reference. You know what a cross-reference is in, in Scripture? This is, this is when one verse uh, is, is used to deepen. It's, it's linked to another place. So one verse is linked back to another verse, and it's used to deepen our meaning of that verse, and it's connecting locations, it's connecting people, it's connecting phrases or words, and that cross-reference is something that deepens meaning and gives clarity and affirms accuracy. So I want to show you a picture I came across this week. Here's what this is. Um, First of all, I want to tell you this is a picture of God's handiwork. What you're seeing is a visualization of every cross-reference in the Bible. That's what, that's what this is. So if you look along the bottom, you see these bars that are coming down on the bottom, the ones that are kind of white and grayish that are coming down. Every single one of those, and I know that's small, but every single one of those bars represents a chapter in the Bible. And the length of the bar tells you how many verses are in that chapter, right? So all the way to the far left is Genesis chapter 1. All the way to the far right is Revelation 22. Right down the middle, you're going, well, what's that long one right in the middle? Well, what's the longest chapter in the Bible? Anybody know? Psalm 119. That's that bar, that's that bar right there. It has, I think, 150 verses or something like that. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. So it has the longest bar. And the lines, those arced lines that give kind of that beautiful artistic uh, layout is every time a verse in one of those chapters is referenced in another chapter at, by another verse of the Bible. And the, the bluish, purplish lines, the, they are those colors because for some of those references, they're a little closer together, right? So a reference between, let's say, Psalm and Isaiah will be a purplish line, but a reference between Genesis and Revelation will be kind of a green or yellow line. And what you have is over 64,000 times the Bible references itself in some way. And you go, well, where's the miracle of that? Here's the miracle. If one person wrote a piece of literature right now that was so well, that was that intricately woven together, do you know what we would say? We would say, that man's a genius. 
that lady is a genius. That is a master composer. But listen, when it comes to the Bible, there are 40 authors who wrote 66 books, right? It was written over a span of 1,600 years. It was written across three different continents and three different languages, and yet it is the most intricately woven story in history because on top of those 40 authors was the one real author. And it is supernaturally woven together in its structure. I just wanted you to see that. I thought that was amazing. So you see this in the continuity of the structure. But you also see it in the continuity of the story. The continuity of the story. From the first author, who is Moses, to the last author, who is John. What you begin to understand is all of the Bible is one story about one person. Jesus Christ. The whole Bible, one story about one person. And you can see it really in, in four categories, which is creation, the fall, redemption, and, and ultimate restoration. You can see it kind of in those four uh, categories. Think about it. Genesis 1, where do we begin? We begin in a garden with God ruling and reigning, and all is as it should be, and humanity's in perfect fellowship with him, and they're enjoying him. And where does the story end in Revelation 22? We're back in a garden, and God is ruling and reigning, and all is as it should be, and humanity is enjoying him forever, just as they should, and everything is restored. And from Genesis to Revelation, what you see is the thread of redemption that centers on one person, Jesus Christ. That's what you see. When humanity fell, everything changed. In Genesis 3, when humanity fell, everything changed. And from that moment, through the sin of one man, Adam, all of us are born in sin, which means we're born separated from God. We're not born okay. We're born sick with sin and separated from God, and it happened right then. But from that moment, God made a promise that said, I'm going to redeem my people. I'm not going to leave them in that helpless estate, and I will put into place a redemption that is coming for them, and I'm going to write into this story a rescue. And from Genesis chapter 3, the promise began to be made, and the thread started to go through Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, you see the thread begin when God promised, I'm going to send one who's going to crush the head of that serpent who deceived my people. And the thread began. You see the thread go into Exodus where God redeemed his people out of slavery and that was nothing but a foreshadowing of the ultimate redemption of all of us out of the slavery of sin and death. You see that go right on into Leviticus and Numbers and the sacrificial system where over and over again people would have to sacrifice animals to temporarily cover their sin and all of that was a foreshadowing of the one man who would for all time die for all sin for eternity, Jesus Christ. You see the thread continue right on into the Psalms where we see a foreshadowing of the true shepherd, the true warrior, and the true king. You see that thread get into Isaiah chapter 7 when God says, I'm going to send you a child that is going to be born of a virgin and you're going to call his name Emmanuel because he'll be God with you when he comes. Then your thread gets to Isaiah chapter 9 and God says, all those people who from the moment they fell, who have been walking in darkness, 
when this child shows up, they're going to see a great light. And I'm going to put the weight of the kingdom of God on his shoulders, and you're going to call him Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The thread keeps going right into Isaiah 53 where God says, Okay, now this one who has showed up out of the darkness, the great light, born of a virgin, now this one is going to die. He's going to take up your infirmities. He's going to carry your sorrows. He's going to be stricken for your sin. He's going to be pierced for your transgression, crushed for your iniquities. But you have to look at him, and you have to receive him, and you have to love him, because the punishment that is on him is actually going to bring your healing and bring your restoration to me. You see that thread come right on into Jeremiah 33, where God says, I am going to cause a branch to spring forth, and it's going to execute justice and righteousness and salvation for my people. You see the thread keep on going into Exodus 36 where God says, through this one, I'm going to be able to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and put my Holy Spirit within you. You see the thread go into Hosea where God says, he calls his man. He says, I want you to get up and I want you to go and find the worst prostitute you can find and I want you to marry her and I want you to take her home and she's going to rebel against you she's going to cheat on you she's going to sin against you and you are to then go back out and buy her back and win her heart because when my people need a picture of how I feel about them that's the picture I want them to have then I'm going to go win them back you see the thread get all the way to John three sixteen, where Jesus goes You know that one who came to crush the head of the serpent? I'm here. And God so loved you that he gave me his son. And if you would simply believe in me, you'll not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. This is one story. And Jesus is in every book. He's in every chapter. He's in every verse. He's in every promise. He's the thread running from beginning to end. This is one story about one man who brings one hope, offers one salvation, one redemption, and one reconciliation to the one true God, Jesus Christ. The question is this. Has the one Jesus Christ saved you from your sin? Has he saved you from your sin? If you leave today and all you are is impressed with Jesus and impressed with how cool of a book the Bible is, hell will be filled with people who were impressed with Jesus. Jesus didn't die to impress you. He died to save you. But salvation means you come to a place where you realize, I need a Savior. I can't keep living this life the way I'm living. I know I'm not right with God. I know I'm not. And if this book is true, it means that man is true, which means if I have him, I have everything. And if I don't, I'm bankrupt and I'll spend eternity separated from God. So what we're going to do in a minute is we're going to stand. And if you need to be saved by the Jesus of this Bible, the hero of this story, then I just want you to step out and come grab one of us and go, 
I don't want to be a fan. I don't want to just admire him. I don't want to just be impressed by him. If he can offer me new life, he said, I've come to give you life. If he can offer me that life, I want it. I want it. You just come tell one of us, I want that life. For others of us in the room, this morning, the Holy Spirit is telling you, If this is how you really feel about this word, then are you living surrender to it? Are you living in obedience to it? Are you treasuring this word? It might be this morning, you just got to come to the altar and go, God, I, I take your word for granted. I don't pursue you in your word. I don't prioritize time with it. Oh, I call myself a believer, but... There's a lid on my faith. There's a lid on my understanding. There's a lid on my spiritual power because I don't crack this book and pursue you. The writer of Hebrews wanted us to understand in Hebrews chapter 4, this word is living and active. It has transformative power. Sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide bone from marrow and soul from spirit. This word is alive. So if you need to just come acknowledge to the Lord, I haven't pursued you in your word. Would you renew my desire for your word? Come do that. If you need to be baptized today, like these, these two sisters were, who just said, I just I got to get baptized. I've been saved. Now I'm baptized. If you haven't been baptized, you come. If you need the Jesus of the Bible, you come. Lord, we ask that for the next few minutes, you would just move in power. Help us be obedient in Jesus' name.